there, everybody. It's Movie Geeks United. Thanks for tuning in. Another great episode planned tonight, our monthly home entertainment episode <laughs> with Adam Long, the one and only Adam <laughs> Long. What a fanfare. You You're too kind. You're too kind. <laughs> <laughs> Breaking news. Yeah. Coming at you. So what's up, uh, uh, You know, just uh, trying to keep up with these video releases. What can I tell you? It was a pretty... What, what pretty... is the last movie you saw on that big screen and projector of yours? <laughs> Uh, you're gonna laugh when I tell you this. I, I imported a box set of. Uh, you're laughing already. I, I imported a box set uh, from the UK. This was not uh, a stateside release, but the Incredible Hulk television series. And my daughter is, you know, has not seen a lot of those, and she's become quite interested in it. And so she was here visiting for the weekend, so we threw up a couple of those on the projector, which is which is interesting to watch. The Hulk episodes on in high def. It's a Blu-ray box set on a projector, which is not the mm. way they were intended to be seen. So you can see the limitations, the technical limitations of the productions that were inherent. Like in other words, if Lou Ferrigno's green makeup smears all over something else, or it rubs off, and there's a splotch of his regular mm. body that's showing through, you can you can actually see it. It's kind of <laughs> it's it's interesting, but. Um, yeah, Some of these I understand that Lou Ferrigno is still smearing off of people. Uh, <laughs> <okay>. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> well, you know these. Well, it's funny because there are a couple of these episodes that were released overseas in theaters and did quite well. They made hmm. quite a bit of money. Um, hmm. One of them was the original pilot film, which uh, which was really it was a television. Of course, went straight to television here in '77, November of '77, and it led to the TV series. But they they released it in England the following year in '78. I actually have a one sheet from the uh, UK release, believe it or not. Kind of hard to find, and um, it uh, yeah yeah it did did pretty well. And how many seasons it, did that run? It ran five actually. There's five five seasons. Uh, you know, it. so the, there's there's that there's. Uh... Buck Rogers, there's um, well, Buck Battle Rogers. Battlestar. Really. Uh, <laughs> uh, what's, uh, what's the other superhero thing that was in the seventies? Well, Six million dollar man. Yeah, Six million dollar man and a woman. Yeah. And then we had Greatest American Hero in the early eighties, and uh, mm-hmm. so there were kind of like superhero TV shows that did really well back in the day, and it's so odd that everybody goes to the movies to see those those Marvel superhero things, but they don't do well on TV anymore. Like all the Marvel stuff, to my knowledge, has been struggling on TV. It has. You're exactly right. They just canceled what I think uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., I believe, just got the axe this year, if I'm not mistaken. I could be wrong, but I believe I heard that. And, you know, and it is funny because when you and I were growing up in the late 70s, Marvel was trying to get the comics – Adapted into films and television shows, they were. I mean, Stan Lee was really trying to get that going, uh, and nobody. There were no takers, which is interesting. Yeah. And so Universal bought the rights, uh, a licensing agreement. They purchased a licensing agreement with Marvel, and so they had all those 
characters. That's how they wound up with the Incredible Hulk, and, and Ken Johnson was the creator of the Bionic Woman. They came to him with the Hulk, and apparently he said, I'm not interested in doing any superhero stuff. I don't want to do any of this. This is not for me. And he said he had to think about it long and hard before he he said, you know, I'm not interested in people wearing spandex and running around and <laughs> men in tights kind of thing. He said, that's not my thing. And and then he got to thinking about it, and he, he was reading Le Miserable, he said, and he he took plot elements from Le Miserable and worked them into a weekly, you know, into The Incredible Hulk with the guy, with the guy being on the run and being pursued. And he said he thought, if I could work into social issues and get a serious comment about what's going on in the world, you, you know, with things we have to deal with as human beings, he says, I might do this. And that's how I got started, which is mm. interesting because that's the antithesis, I think, of what Marvel is today. So <laughs> they right. can use more of that, in my opinion. Uh, so, so you know how you um, you know movies are one thing I think I think and thematically uh, and in terms of um, uh, amb- ambiguity and uh, storytelling daring uh, mm-hmm. I think the seventies uh, outdo anything made today and yet there are elements of movie making that from back then and of course before that aren't as smooth. As today, because I mean, the technology mm-hmm. and, and and the know-how and certain techniques have really evolved over the years. Yeah. I mean, uh, but but do you see that in TV? Because I mean, uh, technically and from a storytelling standpoint, I mean, TV is pretty damn good now. But when you it look sure back is. at some shows shows from the seventies, I mean, do you see the uh, the, the stretch marks and the kind of the things that make you wince that weren't maybe as technically clever as they are today? Oh yeah, yeah. You can see it, especially, uh, and the creator of the Hulk. He'll even tell you. He said, "I was always embarrassed by the transformation scenes in in the Hulk because we just didn't have the technology. We couldn't do it. We had no way to do it." He said, "I, I, I wince when I look at it today, and I'm the same way. I mean, you know, they're they're not they're they're very technically inept, but I mean, there just wasn't any other way around it, you know. And there's a lot of other shows yeah. that were like that, you know, of its time." Like you said, but uh, the storytelling was, you know, back then was interesting. Sometimes it could be fall into the formulaic stuff a little bit uh, much with all the cop shows. I think there was such a glut of those back in the day when we were coming up. But, you know, I, I think The Hulk was one of those shows that tried to do something different and within the context of a superhero franchise right. character. And, I mean, not all of them Especially the trailers, man. Uh, I mean, I, I love the films of the 70s, but you go back and watch some of the trailers, and uh, they think the trailers give away a lot today. There were some trailers that are like four minutes long, and, and they're and they're so uh, it hadn't become an art yet unto itself. Yeah, uh, tra- trailers. Uh, that's something that has you know whether you you can argue that they give too much away or what have you, but uh, that's something that has become a lot more. Uh, uh, a lot uh, more uh, effective storytelling on its own, the trailer. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great, great point. I, I totally agree. Um, yeah, it's the trailers are much, they do a much better job. Although sometimes they do give too much away, but but sometimes they can really be effective without doing that today. If they play yeah, their cards right. Yeah, but even if they even if they do, the way they're the cutting is so much more sophisticated. 
that I mean, it's, it's just more more effective storytelling uh, than the yeah. trailers back yeah. then. Even in the '80s, if you watch some of the old, like the first Lethal <laughs> yeah. Weapon trailer or what have you, and then and then the other thing that uh, because I watch a lot of old Carson clips on YouTube. No, they used to show five-minute cl- movie clips on, on late-night talk shows. I know. <laughs> they just go on and on and on. Uh, that was interesting, too. It is. All right. It really is. Let's talk about Blu-rays for June. We can do it. We can do it. Yeah, we've got a – it's quite a quite a nice batch. Some newer stuff, some older stuff, and a good mix. We'll We'll go back to June 5th. Because we usually go back to the beginning of the month and work our way to the current day. and So uh, Peter Pan was reissued by Disney in a new signature collection. And uh, most of the extras carried over from the others. Uh, I don't know what we want to say about Peter Pan. I, I, I'm, I'm one of these guys who I have to admit that growing up as a child uh, in the 70s, speaking of that, uh, I had no interest in seeing these Disney animated movies when I was a kid growing up. <laughs> I just, I mm. didn't. I'm not saying they're bad. Uh, I've seen a lot of them. I'm still there are some glaring omissions in my um, viewing of them, but I just didn't get excited about them when I was a kid. I wasn't interested in them. I've seen them more as a as a chore as an adult because I felt like I needed to, but. Uh, and Peter Pan is, you know, it's not bad, I guess. It's, but it's it's certainly far from the best animated movie I've ever seen. I mean, you know, but I, I have to make that confession. I always have to to say that about when we're talking about Disney animated movies. I was a rare bird in that I was more interested in seeing adult movies with more adult-oriented yeah. themes as a kid. And I'm talking five, six, seven years old. That I I didn't I didn't care about this stuff. I just didn't care about it. No, I'm totally, I'm totally on board with you. I, I yeah. and uh, never watched any animated stuff. I, I, I never watched, uh, never even watched Sesame Street. Uh, or, <laughs> yeah. or I watched very few of the Muppet things. I do remember when I was a kid, I watched that movie Pete's Dragon a lot. Oh yes, I did. I saw that in the theater. Now I will admit to that. Yeah, for some strange reason, and why I don't know, because that was a, a, an anomaly for me. Yeah, but uh, yeah. Same same here. Maybe it was because Helen Reddy was in it. Maybe that had something to do with it. <laughs> Maybe we were big Helen Reddy yeah, fans. She she really she really drew in the kids. Helen Reddy. Right, she sure uh, did. Because she was woman, you know. So. <laughs> yeah, she did roar. <laughs> she did roar. Absolutely. <laughs> we can't forget that. All right. But but anyway, Peter Pan is out there in a new uh, signature edition, and they you know it it looks great. It really does. If you're a fan of Peter Pan, uh, I would highly recommend it. But you know, I'm you a have fan to be of the fan. peanut butter. I tell oh you well, what. I am too. So yes. If they came out with a, with a special edition of that, I'd, I'd go out and buy it. <laughs> be on that like a lampshade. So absolutely. Yeah, well, we have uh, Greaser's Palace. That's from that's one I've heard about for years, but uh, I didn't get a review copy on this. But it's uh, it's notable because it uh, is directed by Robert Downey Sr. Mm. And it's uh, it's 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 the story of Christ's suffering and placed in the context of the Old West. That's what makes it interesting, and it has a really curious cast, uh, including Tony Basil, who later would have the number one record, Mickey, in wow. ni- late 1982. Wow. <laughs> so, so what, what uh, year is that this film released? 
1972. This has a, wow, a really so Tony Tony Basil was around that long. Oh yeah, she did. She's in uh, if I if memory serves, she's in Five Easy Pieces as well. She has a pretty notable part huh. in that, I believe. The, uh, the the Nicholson movie. Yeah, she's been around a long time. There's an amazing video of her that went viral about a year or two ago, and she's still incredibly youthful, and she was doing all her Mickey routines, all the jumping and all the cheerleading stuff, and she's like 73 years old. It was pretty amazing to see. Wow. <laughs> it's out there, but yeah, she's, she's what an still... What an interesting time, interesting time for music, the 80s was. Because yeah. that really, that song Mickey really, in its essence... Is like a fifties, like a like a doo wop, like a fifties kind of song. It is with synthesizers and all that shit on it. Mm-hmm. And it's catchy as hell. I mean, come on, let's face it. And, yeah, uh, but yeah, I, I feel enor- I feel enormous girl power whenever I play it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, she was around. I think she was more of a choreographer than she was an acting presence. But she would turn up in in movies, and uh, the Greaser's Palace is one of them. And like I said, this has a there are. A, a lot of rabid fans of Robert Downey Sr.'s work. You know, Putney's right. Wope is the most notable one, of course, which that elements of that have been incorporated into a lot of movies, including Boogie Nights, because I know Paul Thomas Anderson is a tremendous fan of that, too. So so anyway, for big fans of Robert Downey Sr., just wanted to mention that Greaser's Palace is available from Scorpion Releasing. And then we have an interesting, uh, the directorial debut of Trudy Styler. I'm talking about Sting's, well, the uh, leader of the police, of course. Mm. Uh, his wife, Trudy Styler, has made her directorial debut with a film starring Abigail Breslin and Bette Midler called Freak Show, which is a, this is a fairly new release, 2017. Um, I did not get to, a chance to look at it, but I just thought that was interesting that, uh, that Trudy Styler was getting into the filmmaking business. So she's. I wonder how long it took her to direct it. I wonder if she, if she practiced tantric directing. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, there you go. Good, good point. Well, Mill Creek releasing has entered, uh, has released uh, the Gridiron Gang with Dwayne the Rock Johnson. That's how early. Is that is that Phil Juwanu? Um. Let's see. I'm looking for a director credit here on that, and I'm not seeing one actually. I'll have to do some delve into it, but yeah, it could I'll look be. it up because if you if you remember Phil Duanu, like came onto the scene and he was so uh, distinctive in the '90s with stuff with like the the U2 concert film and State of Grace and yeah. Uh, Final analysis. I guess we can skip that one, but but he had a, a a very distinctive style, and then he just disappeared off the face of the earth. I think yeah. one of the movies he came back with was Gridiron Gang, like a really that's weird... right. You were correct. This is true. Okay, he, he did. Yeah, that's uh, weird. That's like the only major credit he's got. Uh, with well, the, the Veil from two thousand. 16, which I'm not familiar with. But other than that, that's pretty much it, other than some short films and videos. Yeah, it is. It yeah, those is guys, like, there, were, there were a lot of guys, I think it was when they when they first started uh, hiring film school uh, mm-hmm. geeks, you know, the major studios, to helm, to helm a movie. And uh, they were very concerned with style, a lot of those people. And then they just kind of went out of fashion. They kind of disappeared. Um, 
And another guy like that was Damien, uh, what was his name? Damien, Damien something. He directed uh, Deceived with Goldie Hawn mm-hmm. um, and Bad Company with Lawrence Fishburne and Ellen Barkin. Damien something. Yeah, I'm trying anyway, to Anyway, he disappeared of... too. Damien Harris, that's it. It just came to me, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that Phil Toronto, right. he's interesting because I think he's a protege of uh, Steven Spielberg because I was just reminded that he directed, uh, he got he cut his teeth on that Amazing Stories television show mm. back in the mid-'80s, and he directed what I think is, is a, ter- a superb episode of, of that show called The Doll, which won an Emmy for uh, John Lithgow. It's just it's wow. written by Richard Madison. It's it's such a sweet sweet episode of that show that just it deals with loneliness in a very profound way and about connecting with somebody when you know you 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 want to and you don't know how and it's just it's really well done. So and then he did Three O'clock High if you remember, which is has a huge cult oh. following. So, but I think the best thing he did was State of Grace, which uh, yeah. I love that with Ed Harris and. Sean Penn and Gary Oldman, that's really, really strong. So, yeah, that's an interesting case, the case of Phil Juanu, So <laughs> Yeah, and a great, uh, great um, score, uh, Morricone score from State of Grace, too. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, it is. I need to get that back out and revisit. So, yeah, well, the Gridiron Gang is out from Mill Creek Entertainment, and uh, there's a pair of... Um, Frank Capra films that have been reissued by Sony, Lost Horizon from 1937, and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, which, uh, especially Mr. Smith, that's just, just superb if, for anybody who hasn't seen it. I'm sure most of our listeners have, but anyway, uh, I know this is television, but I will mention that the complete 21st season of South Park, 21 seasons, hard to believe, but it has been issued by oh. Paramount. Uh, and then The Big Country from 19... 19- 58, which you generally gets high marks from most people who have seen it. It's a blind spot for me. It's directed by William Wyler and um, has Gregory Peck and Carol Baker. And it's a, a, a Western epic about feuding families and opposing ideologies. And I really, really need to investigate that because I hear it's it's great. But Kino has issued that. Um, the great Silence, which is a film from 1968 directed by Sergio Corbucci and starring Klaus Kinski. That's been issued by oh. Film Movement. But uh, one of those Italian, uh, maybe spaghetti westerns, I guess you'd call it. But the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the original, has been issued for the umpteenth time as a blue Best Buy exclusive steel book. <laughs> not sure, not sure why they're reissuing it, but there it is. And uh Yeah, that's been available uh I mean they even have a four K uh or two K or whatever it is of that, don't they? And one of yeah. the editions came in it came in the guy's uh, semi truck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Blu ray was uh, in a semi truck or something that the guy at the end was driving. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great. Mm. Well, there, uh, we'll move to June 12th, and there's, uh, you know, that guy's still alive, or I, I don't Is know if that guy's really? still alive, but I, I remember like five years ago, uh, I went to a horror convention. I, mm-hmm. I, I don't typically go to those things, 
but the entire living cast of the original Chainsaw was there. Yeah. And uh, this was before uh, Marilyn Chambers died, so I got to see her. Uh, before oh, wow. Gunnar Hansen died, so I got to see him. And then uh, the nicest person was Terry uh, McMinn, the meat oh, she's girl. Great. Um, but uh, also Kurt was there, and um, I think Paul Partain, the wheelchair-bound character, was he there? Uh, he, he was already passed. Oh. But uh, the, the 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 black semi truck driver. The very end was there too. This guy, like, oh. he, walk, he walks in the movie like uh, he's barely in it a minute, and he's part of film history. And he was there, just smiling a mile wide. He was oh. glad to be there. That's great. Yeah, that's yeah. Terry McMahon, she's she's the sweetest. She's on. I'm friends with her on Facebook and follow her posts. And she's just a great, great. Seems like a good human being. So yeah, but yeah. they're thinning out the ranks of that cast. Unfortunately, they're really. Yeah, Sadly. director dead. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, she, and she, Terry McMinn, really uh, denied uh, the movie for a while. I mean, she lived her life, and she, uh, I yeah. don't think she was quite quite familiar with how how much of a following it had cultivated over the years. Yeah, she's, and she, I don't think she was a fan of Toby Hooper either. She's made some social mm. media posts that uh, after he passed, she's. She basically said there'll be no tears yeah. from from me or, or something to that effect, and I, I, uh, I thought, oh boy, so, <laughs> yikes. Well, yeah. Anyway, we'll move on to June twelfth, and I'm sure you can probably talk about some of these titles. Here's one for you: Body of Evidence, directed by Yuli oh, goodness. Ido and uh, Madonna, Willem <laughs> Ann Archer, Julianne Moore, and Joe Montagna. Has been issued by Shout Factory. So Madonna. We... Now, yeah. who did that? Who did that? Uh, Yuli Idel, which I don't know if he uh, did anything after that. Maybe that really was a career killer. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Uh, I mean, I remember how awful it was. The only scene I remember in it is the, the candle wax. Yeah. She poured candle wax on his naked body. And who doesn't want to see Madonna pour candle wax on that? Uh, Willem Dafoe's naked body, I, and and it it's it's had the stench of um, man. We gotta we gotta do a another Basic Instinct kind of movie. It did, didn't it? Yeah, uh, yeah. It really it, it look it it had the feel of a cash grab. Let's just put it that way. It really did. Yeah, because I mean you know you got the millionaire who dies of heart failure, handcuffed to the bed. And the videotape of him and his lover and his cocaine and his, you know all that stuff and the, it's yeah, but there's a there's two versions of the film. I don't know if uh, if it makes any difference, but there's the R-rated and the unrated. Uh, I know I remember when it came out on video, there was a big deal about it, but I don't know. I just I I remember there being really no on-screen chemistry between Willem Dafoe and Madonna. No. I don't. I just, that's the thing that stood out in my mind. It's been a long time, but I just remember there, there really not being any chemistry between them. It was like, it was nil, to say the least. So I don't know. But we'll go back to 30, well, it's the 30th anniversary edition on this one, Coming to America. Mm. And, um, don't think there are really any new 
extras on this. I think it's just mainly a recycling of the last the last Blu-ray that was issued five years ago. But, you know, it does have a large uh, group of fans, and there was talk of a sequel, was there not? I don't know if that's kind of died yeah. down. and So much of this stuff will, makes the news and then nothing becomes of it. I think that might have been the yeah, case. Yeah, directed by my my favorite my favorite murdering director. <laughs> yeah, and uh, it it does have, it does have funny stuff in it. Um, but uh, and I was surprised they just ha- they just posted um, behind the scenes photos of Eddie Murphy's new movie where he plays Rudy Ray Moore. So he oh, yeah. he's doing it. They, they're filming it now. So he didn't back out of it, which is good. Good. Good for him. I was I was thinking that seemed like that was a, a done deal when I by the time I heard the news it said this sounds pretty concrete to me. So I had a feeling that that might happen. That's great because he needs to do more of that stuff. But yeah, yeah I, I, that's good. And uh, but yeah, I guess the Coming to America sequel is probably dead at this point. I, I certainly haven't heard anything about it. But but. Anyway, and while we're on the subject of your favorite murdering director, why not why not just go ahead and mention that Trading Places is uh, also being reissued in a 35th anniversary edition, <laughs> which was the this was notable because this was what the first film he shot after the the Twilight Zone incident, I believe. Yeah, I think, yeah. I think it was, and it was it was really popular. Yes, um, it, it went. Yep. He he lets he he had a uh, he had a gift for uh for latching on to um uh pop culture sensations. Uh mm-hmm. you know, at at the at the peak. Uh not after they puttered out, but uh when they were just reaching their apex. And he did it with Eddie Murphy, he did it with Michael Jackson. Um you know, he so his career thrived because I think he was smart about seeking out people or maybe they sought him out i i mean i don't know but one way or another that that was the great strokes of luck for him yeah he was very savvy when it came to that sort of thing you're exactly right but yeah this uh i i know that and the thing i did like about him i will say is that he was great at casting these um these actors yes. of his youth in these great parts like don amici you have here and ralph bellamy uh, very notable, and um, but yeah, wasn't wasn't it there a Twitter war? But uh, with his son defending him, somebody brought that up on Twitter here yeah. recently, and they got really got into it, got nasty. So that that I mean, I'm I'm can, able to, I'm able to hold two thoughts in my head at the same time. I mean, I think he was ultimately responsible for what happened, even though yes, it was a freak accident, but he greased the wheels and he he set those conditions in motion, which. Uh, accommodated such a tragedy in mm-hmm. Twilight Zone, but uh, at the same time, I do recognize he's he's one of the best director rock on tours, um, and and he he makes fun movies that have a uh, a, a very uh, cultish and in, at the same time uh, very approachable and, and and respectable of old Hollywood. I mean, I, I recognize his quality. Yeah. Sure. I mean, uh, Charles Manson yeah, he, was very charismatic. I mean, uh, you know, everybody can. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good point. That's that is a good point. Yeah. 
Well, I will uh, I will mention some other titles that were issued on the day. One is Designing Woman, which is a movie I had have never seen. Warner Archives issued this. Gregory Peck and Lauren Bacall, and it's a uh, oh, it's a romantic comedy directed by Vincent Minnelli. Wow, what a pedigree! I know, yeah, right. And it has music by Andre Previn as well. And musical numbers and dances staged by Jack Cole. And also has uh, in the cast Jesse White, who, for people of our generation, we know him as the the lonely Maytag repairman. So, (laughs) wow, wow. There we go. Delta not in this, does she? No, no, this is designing woman as opposed to women. So, yeah, so a woman singular there. So, uh, yeah, oh, and Chuck Connors, by the way, in an early role. How about that? Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah, it's got the uh, mini documentary on the, uh, that's about the costume designer of the film, Helen Rose, and there's a theatrical trailer, and of course, a new transfer from the great Warner archive transfers that they do they they always do stellar work with their transfers so anyway designing now the maytag and, guy the maytag guy is different from the dunkin donuts guy isn't he yeah these are, these yeah, are the yeah. kind of pro, these are the kind of probing questions i like to ask yeah <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't they look alike i mean i remember the ad campaign in the 80s for the guy getting out of bed and saying time to make the donuts time to make the donuts and he looked just like the maytag guy no he didn't <laughs> I know who the Maytag guy is now. Was the Maytag guy in Alice? Uh, well, they the one back in the seventies and most of the eighties was Jesse White, and then he died. And he, like I said, he was a character actor in tons of stuff. He even turns up in that old Kolchak the Night Stalker television series from the seventies, and he's just in all kinds of stuff. And then he passed, and then Gordon Jump took over from WKRP in Cincinnati. Gordon Jump, WKRP. Right? Yeah, so that's what. Okay. That's, look at the useless information in my head. So, <laughs> <laughs> just rolling around there. And in your so, opinion, Adam, those Maytag commercials do they pair up with today's commercials? Technically, no, I'm kidding. All right. <laughs> we'll go we'll go on to the next one. Yeah, we'll move on with Dark the Dark Man trilogy, which has been issued by Universal. And I, um, you know, the first Dark Man, I, I like it. It's directed by Sam Raimi, but I didn't see the sequel, so I can't pass judgment on those. But I don't know. They went direct to video, so that pretty much tells you what you need to know, probably. But um, mm-hmm. anyway, for diehard fans of the Dark Man trilogy, even though it, they the sequels do retain some of the cast members from the original, so uh, Larry Drake I think was the most notable. But anyway, yeah, um, yeah. So there you go. I will mention this in passing because it is worth mentioning if you if you're a fan of terrific uh, stand-up comedy and um, MPI has issued on Blu-ray a collection with every single George Carlin HBO special. They're all there, wow. plus hours and hours of bonus material. And he did a lot of HBO specials. Let's put it that way. This is a 15-disc set called the George Carlin Commemorative Collection and. I'm a Carlin fan. Don't know if anybody else out there listening is. I have a feeling that some of our listeners are, but if you are, this is a uh, this is a pretty pretty impressive package where you can get access to all those HBO specials that he did all the way from the 70s to the very last one that he did wow. right up not long before he died. So 
Yeah. Mm. So we'll move on, on to the 1989 film. I bet you remember this one, Gross Anatomy, with Matthew Modine. This was he took this sure. was what he did after Full Metal Jacket. He he parlayed his his <laughs> notability after his good good notices with Full Metal Jacket and went on and did Gross Anatomy with uh, Daphne Zuniga and Christine Lante. So uh, directed by it's Tom Everhart. Interesting. There was a period of time when there were quite a few medical dramas. Uh, they still have them on TV, obviously, but mm-hmm. um, they had a couple of movies that were medical dramas as well, like between Gross Anatomy and Article 99, and um, mm-hmm. I know there are others that I'm forgetting, but uh, yeah, that's, and, and you know they're still popular on TV, but you don't see them so much in film anymore. Yeah. That's a that's a Kino release, and I think that may be one of those Touchstone films. I can't remember, maybe not, but uh, I know they got access to the Touchstone I, I think it library. Is. I think it is. Yeah, yeah. and uh, of course, who can forget the searing medical drama, Flatliners? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, came the very next year. Yeah, which which looks like Citizen Kane compared to the remake of last year. So, <laughs> mm. yeah, ooh. Well, anyway, we'll go back to 1962 for another Kino release, Jack the Giant Killer, which was one of these in the vein of, uh, you know, it's one of these Ray Harryhausen-type movies with the the stop-motion effects. And I used to watch it on cable when I was a kid, but I don't think Ray Harryhausen did the effects in this one. Um, But it's the same director as uh, the guy who made Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, which Harryhausen did do the effects for that, but... Uh, and there are a couple of the same actors that, that appear in this one as well. So, you know, it's the, the good thing about this release is it has the original theatrical cut uh, because they, for some reason, and some ungodly reason, they recut this film after its original release and turned it into an Arsatz musical. I don't know why. Uh-huh. Nobody seems to know why. But anyway, the... the uh, the terrible, I would say, musical version of Jack the Giant Killer has also been included. But uh, anyway, if you're a fan of those stop-motion animation films, it's it's pretty good. But only see, only watch the original. Don't bother with the musical version. Universal has issued a couple of catalog titles, and it's interesting what they're choosing to put out. One of them is Junior, with uh, directed by Ivan Reitman and <laughs> Danny DeVito, Emma Thompson, and Arnold Schwarzenegger. And Frank Langella. So. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I caught I caught a few minutes of that on cable the other week. Yeah. Uh, and I once was enough in the theater to see that movie, but I, and I did revisit Kindergarten Cop. Yeah. Ivan Reitman, Schwarzenegger, and uh, I was just I mean I did watch all of it, but it was just so ridiculous. Uh, oh yes. And there's a scene yep. at the end. Where they where they literally make out in a classroom full of uh, little kids. Uh, I mean, they're like hot and heavy, and uh, man, I'm thinking that just seems kind of raw. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, doesn't it? Though this is true. Yeah, it's um, I don't know. Well, it's for some reason they decided to issue that one along with, and this is a bit even bigger question mark. More American Graffiti from 1979, the sequel to American Graffiti. Mm. Yeah, that's uh, 
Uh, it has the all of the original cast, which is pretty amazing that he was able to pull that off. George Lucas was only served as producer on on it. He did not direct. That's uh, B. W. L. Norton, who later went on to do the uh, the dinosaur film Baby in the mid eighties, <laughs> and oh, uh, wow. the television films, the television movie Gargoyles, which does have a cult following. He directed that as well, but. Uh, you know, more American graffiti is—it's—it's it's really weirdly structured, because you know they kind of painted themselves into a hole. If you remember, at the end of American graffiti, they tell you everything that happened to these characters. You know, so and so died, so and so went on to become an insurance salesman, yada yada yada. So you know, you—it's kind of tough to do a sequel when you've painted yourself into that corner. So what they do is basically show you the scenarios that they told you about. They kind of just act them out. Uh, And it it has an interesting visual style because not all of it takes place in the same year. Like they'll show Ron Howard and Cindy Williams are now married, so they'll show them in the year 1968 or 69. And then they'll show Paul Lamad in 1964. And so they show each character in a different year. So it's kind of like it rotates. It goes from, like Harrison Ford's character, they show what he was up to in 1966. So it's, and it has, and the visual style for each year that they show these characters in is different. Like uh, when they get to the psychedelic stuff, it suddenly turns, it's it's a flat movie. It's filmed in 1.85, and then it suddenly becomes widescreen when they do oh. these sequences that are that take place with Candy Clark in the year 1968. So it's really, or maybe it's 67. No, I'm 66, where Candy Clark is in there. And it just go, suddenly goes into uh, widescreen. Candy so Candy really, Clark was a nightmare to interview. Oh, my God. Oh, really? Yeah, she was I terrible. Uh, isn't, isn't Candy wow. Clark the one that worked with Bowie and the man who fell to earth? Yes. Like, you know the same one? Yeah, yes, she was that's terrible. the one. Oh, God. Any of our listeners out there, do not uh, try to interview Candy Clark. She will criticize you from the from the first question. Well, it was right really? after Bowie's death. Uh huh. And uh, so I said, "Oh, we want to do a tribute show." And and she we, we kept her interview. I mean, it, it ran, and I just edited out the parts where she was an ass. But she was an <laughs> ass from the from the word go. I must have caught her at a bad moment or something. Uh, but however, uh, Caleb De- Caleb Deschanel shot uh, more American graffiti. Yeah, I'd forgotten that, but that is true, yeah. Well, it's very well shot, which I'm tempted to actually pick up the Blu-ray just for that reason alone, because it is it is so well shot. It's I'm not going to tell you it's a great movie. It's not, but if you like these characters, which I love them, and I love American Graffiti, it's kind of a soft spot in my heart, but I can't defend it. Yeah. You know, it's indefensible, but... Anyway, I'm glad they put it out on Blu-ray. I'll just say that, and we'll leave it at that. <laughs> Anyway, so the 1989 film, or 1990 film, rather, Lionheart, starring Jean-Claude Van Damme. Um, yeah, that's what I say. This is MVD Rewind is, is the label that's putting this out. And uh, I don't know, it's, it's not my God, cup of tea. Still, there's, so many, there's so many niche labels out there. There really are. There, you know, because I, so many of these... Uh, these mainstream labels that just don't care anymore. They're not interested in putting this stuff out. They they, they don't care about their catalog, and they make no yeah. bones about it because it's not – there's no monetary value to them anymore. But, you know, 
it's good in a way because we've talked about it. We're getting to see some of these things we never thought would see the light of day in high definition. Um, sure. You know, it's it's good. Like this next title, Ninja 3, The Domination. <laughs> I can I can see the poster for that. I mean, can I remember really? what, the, what the cover looks like. Yeah. Some girl, some girl with a zippered down jacket or something holding a samurai sword. That's the one. You got it. Yeah. I know nothing about the movie. Like, seriously. Well, it's one of the can, it's one from the canon group. So that should tell you what you need to know right off the bat. So there was, there was a Ninja 1 and 2? Where did the 1 and 2 go? Yeah, there is. There's Enter the Ninja is the first one. And then I think Revenge of the Ninja is the second. And then Ninja 3. Oh. But I've been told that you don't have to watch any of them, they don't really connect. There's no God, really. I would hope so. I, yeah, right. <laughs> but this well, I've one got, is. Uh, I've got Revenge of the Ninja soundtrack on LP, sealed. Like, uh, and it, it's worth it's worth a hundred dollars. Like seriously, that's what it sells for. Revenge of the Ninja. It's amazing. Yeah, I know. I know that it uh, that there's a, it has a fan a, a cult following, and and this Ninja Three, also the movie. Um, you know, it, it it's it's like a mishmash of martial arts films and The Exorcist, because it's one part ninja movie, one part Exorcist ripoff. Because this, this character is is killed, and then her spirit possesses somebody else, and that's what it that's what happens. So I've not seen it. There's just so much of those canon things from the late '80s and early '90s that I can that I can deal with, and uh, now, maybe there's a specialty fun. film festival. Uh, to do a film festival of canon yeah. movies. I mean, that would be <laughs> yeah, pro- programming for a month if you show them 24 hours a day. Oh yeah, that was uh, that was some time back in back in the day. I mean, I guess I guess they hit their high mark with over the top, wouldn't you say? And then it was all downhill from there. Yeah. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I, I do remember they used to have. Uh, I did see some in the some of the, I did see over the top in the theater, but yeah. uh, I do remember that they used to have double features too. And so I remember one night uh, I took my grandfather to a double feature of uh, Braddock Missing in Action Two and uh, maybe Death Wish Four. Uh, it was one of the Death Wish movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was their double feature. Uh, it was like a pure canon bliss. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm sure there were people that were uh, the people who were fans of that sort of thing were having the night of their lives. Well, uh, yeah, it's uh, yeah. I mean, how much did they pay Stallone to do over the top? It was a ridiculous sum of, a money, of money for an ar- yeah, yeah for an arm wrestling film. So. <laughs> I don't know where their heads were at at that time, but anyway. So we have uh, one of Paul Verhoeven's films uh, from 1980 before he became an American director or directing American films. This was Spetters, which is the. Spetters. Yeah, it's kind of like a rebellious youth movie and gives it some early 80s sex, shall we say. And um, you know, it's uh, I've not seen it. I'm aware of it, but uh, again, uh, Berhoven made some 
pretty interesting movies before he started turning out this American work that he did with RoboCop and all of that. And so there's there's some there's some good stuff he did. So I, I it's probably of interest I would say, and generally gets a good a good word on it. I just wanted to mention that's a Kino release, and here's an interesting yeah, release. We've, you we've, rem- we've gotten cl- we've gotten close to getting Verhoeven on the show. But really? We, we've just we've just never been able to cross the finish line because he made so many popular movies in the uh, in the '80s in that period of time in the early '90s that um, uh, every time we have a, like an anniversary, his name pops up. So I always send him an interview request. And the last time I think he was busy. Uh, making L. Um, great movie, by the way. I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. So he couldn't. So he couldn't take yeah. part. I would. I. I'm a big fan of his early work, like Turkish Delight and Diary of a Hooker. I. I love mm. those. Those are Turkish Delight is is terrific. It's been out of print for years, and I. I bought one when it was still in print from Anchor Bay, which I'm. I'm holding on to that one with, with clutched hands. Nobody's gonna get that one from. Yeah, me, and that so. was uh, <laughs> now was Turk's delight, Rutger Hauer. It is. Or was he in another early? Yeah. Oh yeah, that's that's a it's a pretty brazen movie, shall we say? It mm. really is. There's a lot. Of, I, I think it may have been X-rated. Yes. This was yeah. This was him at the top of his game. So yeah, uh, but I I'm. I'm crossing my fingers and hoping somebody issues tr- Turkish delight on Blu-ray. That's on my. My uh, list, but yeah. So we'll move on to this next title. This is another Kino title from 1979. Now I'm sure you remember the, these days well when Orson Welles was basically prostituting himself out, shall we say, by narrating yeah. these yeah. gloom and doom documentaries. And there were a glut of them in the that used to turn up on cable. And this is one of them, The Late Great Planet Earth, based on the mm. best-selling novel by Hal Lindsey. And I do remember seeing this one oh back in the day and i used to love this stuff i'm going to be honest when i was a kid but so much of it is dated now because the 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 information that they had at the time a lot of these prophecies didn't come to pass and so these movies look totally ridiculous i can't imagine what it would be like watching watching i I remember his i remember his nostradamus yeah Uh, man who saw tomorrow uh, yeah yeah. yeah, that was another one. That was that was interesting. They played that a lot, but uh, I I don't know that he had. I don't know for sure if he had a lot of conviction in these things anyway. And, but as long as they paid the bills, but that's, oh, yeah. that's one of the it's one of the great tragedies. What happened? What sure became is. of him? Um, I know. Where he had to beg really? for job. The man that made the greatest movie ever made had to beg for beg for jobs. Yes. And the, and the sad thing is that if he were alive today, with the technology we have, he could just be pumping them out, basically, for the as cheap as it is to make movies, versus what it was back when he was coming up. And so he. Yeah, I mean, be, essentially, uh, yeah, I, I mean, one of the great film directors of all time. Essentially, that's what he was doing. Yeah. Um, he, he was he was putting together a band of friends and working as long as it took and shooting a bit at a time and yep. kind of uh, scavenging. Yeah. Technology just didn't catch up with him. 
in time. Yeah. It's sad, but yeah, I but I was a sucker for these things as well as uh, that television series In Search of. I love, I just ate that mm. stuff up like candy when I was a kid, which interestingly enough is getting rebooted, totally unrelated, but uh, as a show, uh, yeah, In Search of, and uh, what's the actor that plays uh, um, Mr. Spock on the new Star Trek? I can't think of his name. Uh, it's I'm drawing a blank. Anyway, he's going to be filling in the shoes as the host, which is interesting because he plays Mr. Spock in Star Trek and now he's Zachary Quinto. Zachary Quinto, that's who I'm thinking about. Yeah. He's got, they're doing a reboot of In Search Of and he's going to do the Leonard Nimoy narration, which is interesting. Yeah, so, he he owes his entire career to Leonard Nimoy. Uh, I know, right? And next so next thing you know, he'll be starring in a remake of Three Men and a Baby. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, anyway, so... Um, yeah, Memento has been reissued um, by Samuel Golden Goldwyn Films. Mm-hmm. I think the the original company was Sony that put it out, and I think they they had a licensing their rights to license it have lapsed. So anyway, it has been reissued. That was never back. a criterion. No, I uh, don't believe so. Do not believe so. So um, yeah. Unfortunately, it was not, and uh, I'm surprised. I'm surprised that it wasn't. But anyway, so we move along to um, June 19th, and that would be because I think we just did June 12th. So we have Bowling for Columbine, which has been issued by Mm -hmm. Criterion. And I'm not sure if there's any new extras on this one. Well, yeah, there would be because Criterion's never issued Bowling for Columbine. So, yeah, there are some some new bonus materials on here. And um, I think they are – there's the uh, Michael Moore makes a movie, and uh, that's a 35-minute. There's a Charlie Rose interview. There's the Moore returns to Colorado six months after the film was released. He gave a – speech at the University of Denver, and there's his uh, controversial Oscar speech, of course we remember that, and there's yeah. some stuff from the cutting room floor. So I'm going to, uh, there's another keynote title here that was issued on June 19th, that was a Jacques Brel is alive and well. Now if people don't know who Jacques Brel is, well I'll I'll tell you a little bit about him. He was He was basically the Elvis Presley of France in the 50s and 60s, and he was, he except... He was he was the Elvis Presley of France if Elvis Presley had written his own that way. He was this uh really really super popular singer and performer and his songs were uh, some of them became americanized. Um probably the most famous of his songs was in America that is is uh, Seasons in the Sun which was uh, you know the lyrics were translated and became a number one record for Terry Jackson the spring of 1974 but this is a concert film actually where Jacques Brel came out and they it's uh he he's in the film but it's mostly people paying tribute to Jacques Brel by singing his songs and they've all been translated into English by Mort Schumann who wrote some of the Elvis Presley hits which is interesting so there's Elvis connection there too but um, what's his name uh, Jacques Brel, B-R-E-L. Jacques, Jacques Brel. It sounds yep. like uh, after your description, the movie should have been called Jacques Brel Gets His Dick Sucked. 
<laughs> oh jeez. I'll cut that out. Oh, that's too funny though. Now he's um, yeah, he's 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 very highly revered in in France and and still is. But he died only three years after this was released in 1978. He died of lung cancer, very very young. But his if if you do some investigation on him, you'll see that that he was a pretty big deal. And this is a I've always wanted to see this concert film. Uh, I've heard about it. And, and never it was kind of hard to find, and I still haven't gotten a chance to look at it yet. But it's thankfully Kino has put it out there, and uh, it's called Jacques Brel is Alive and Well and Living in Paris. And like I said, it's basically a musical review of some of his biggest hits done in Americanized versions. And then, like I said, he makes an appearance at the end. And uh, so I, I know we usually don't talk about newer films, but I will mention the uh, Steven Soderbergh film Unsane, which I thought was really, really good and kind of came and went real fast, and people didn't pay much attention to it. So I just wanted to mention that it's out there as well. Um, I thought it was kind of unjustly forgotten. And uh, Kino has also issued uh, Under Capricorn, directed by Alfred Hitchcock and starring John Colton and Margaret Lynn. Hume Cronin turns up in this. Uh, it's, I don't think it's one of his strongest films. It's no. It's uh, yeah, Ingrid. Now, Bergen. what period was this? Uh, yeah, this was 1949. Okay. So, yeah, it's just not. It's probably one of the weaker films in his in in his catalog. I think I'm trying to think who put. I, I'm thinking this is one of the films he did for uh, for David O. Selznick under that contract when he mm-hmm. first came to America. So. Yeah, it's just not one of the. Well, he was damn. He was damn consistent, though. I mean, it, yeah, he uh, was. Uh, if not in terms of quality, he was consistent, and you had a steady flow of a Hitchcock movie every year, essentially. Oh, if yeah. I'm not mistaken, I mean, he 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 was prolific. So yeah, some of them obviously aren't aren't going to be up to snuff. Yeah, this is true. Yeah, he was pumping them out there for a long time, up until I think he started getting a little spotty after Psycho because there was. You know, he right. sixty one, sixty two. There was nothing, and then he did the birds, and then there was another two, three years when nothing. So he, yeah, he started slowing down a little bit there towards the end. But but basically, like you said, for decades and decades, he was he was pumping them out. So yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I think I think it was culture culturally too. Uh, yeah, he wasn't sure. You know, he he mm-hmm. he wasn't on a as certain footing as he had yep. been before. And then you have an enormous success like Psycho. Uh, yeah. And uh, how, how the hell do you follow that up? I mean, there, there must have been a lot of trepidation on his part, both in terms of where the culture was and how he tops his biggest success. Oh, yeah. Had to have been. Had to have been. Yeah, there's a... We'll move on to another title. This is a Warner Archive title here. Directed by, again, Vincent Minnelli. We just mentioned him with the other Warner Archive title, Designing Woman. So I guess it's two from Vincent Minnelli from Warner Archive. This is Two Weeks in Another Town, starring Kirk Douglas and Edward G. Robinson, Sid Charisse, George Hamilton, Claire Trevor. Mm. And it's, uh, it's, uh, they, some people say, uh, and producer, it's produced by John Hausman also, I want to mention that. So it's um you know it's one I have not seen but uh it's uh, and I'm I you know I'm aware of the title and I didn't get a review copy of this one but it it generally gets a good word of mouth 
So I wanted to let people yeah. know that George, it is. George Hamilton. George Hamilton, you know he knows where all the bodies are buried. He's probably one of those those guys that has a million stories about every single Hollywood player you could possibly imagine. There's a couple of other Warner Archive titles while we're talking about Warner Archive. Uh, I will say that Superfly has been issued on Blu-ray, the original, directed by Gordon Parks Jr., and starring, mm. of course, Ron O'Neill and Julius Harris. And music composed and arranged by Curtis Mayfield. What can we yeah. say? So, uh, I, prefer, I, prefer, I prefer Superfly over Shaft. Uh, uh, that's a song, personally. Yes, yes, I agree. I totally agree. Yeah, there's some great extras on this, by the way. There's uh, a retrospective documentary called One Last Deal, which has a commentary by, and there's a commentary by Dr. Tar- Todd Boyd, who's the USC professor of cinema and television and author of I Am I Black Enough? Am I Black Enough? Um, and then there's a behind the. Uh, a Ron O'Neill featurette here on the making of Superfly, and there's uh, the costume designer uh, is interviewed here as well, and there's um, you know so there's some some interesting extras. So and the it? other, oh go ahead. Yeah. Who released it? Oh, uh, that's Warner Archive. Yeah, I was just going through their oh. titles and and another one they issued was the first film directed by Sergio Leone, The Colossus of Rhodes which has commentary by his film historian Christopher Frayling, but that's been issued on Blu-ray for the first time. Uh, it was the, uh, well, of course, Leone had been toiling in the movie industry before that, but that was the first time he actually directed a film, and it's a, it's one of those um, those sword and sandal epics, I guess you would say, with mm-hmm. Rory Calhoun. It's it's a great-looking film, as you might imagine. It's shot in one What of year the, was that? In 19... 61, and that's an mm. MGM release. They they put it out. So, or Warner Archive issued the, the Blu-ray, but the original distributor was MGM, rather. So, yeah, we have a couple uh, Twilight Time titles for the month, of course. There are four titles issued, but Twilight Time, we'll get into those real quick. Let's Make Love, directed by George Cukor and starring... Yves Montan and uh, Marilyn yes. Monroe, right? Yes, and Tony Randall and Frankie Vaughn, and also has guest appearances by Bing Crosby, Milton Berle, and Gene Kelly. So, um, yeah, unfortunately, it's not a good movie. <laughs> right. I would, I would like to say that it is, but it's it was a real slog. I thought it was definitely. Speaking of film resumes, that would definitely make the bottom of her resume. And it was it was towards the end of her career one of the last films she made and it it shows there's just it's just i don't know i I read a review it was great summation of it it said that it was directed with all the panache of a director trying to fulfill an unwanted contractual obligation (laughs) Mm. (laughs) i uh i have to agree and yet he he now who who directed that was the kooker movie kukor yes yes yeah, and right. and yet he he came back and tried to direct her again, and something's got to give, right? Her, la- her last, correct? Her last film. Yeah. They had to, they had to salvage with the uh, footage that they found years ago. Yeah, and the other story, you know, there's probably more interesting behind the scenes drama than there is on screen because, you know, this was the uh, this is when she was um, 
was married to Arthur Miller, and I think that Arthur Miller and and she and Sid Sh- and uh, um, Eves Montand and his wife they were they would go out to dinner quite frequently. And when he was cast in the film Eves Montand, they had an affair, uh, which <laughs> I'm sure that put an interesting spin on their friendship as couples. So eventually, mm. his he stayed married to his wife. They never they never split up, but there was. An affair, which I think led to the demise of her marriage to Arthur Miller, I believe. And, of course, her barbiturate use was increasing during this time, so maybe that had something to do with it. But anyway, they, yeah. I know they – that, that, yeah. that, uh, that Miller documentary that uh, his daughter just made about him, uh, the, there are really interesting segments of that uh, where he talks about his marriage to Monroe. I, uh, she was kind of just so wounded that – he just he just could not uh, mm-hmm. could not take care of her. Man, nobody could. Yeah, that would and have been a tall thing order. About Monroe. That, that's what makes her so alluring. I think mm-hmm. so many decades later is that people look at her and they're like, "Oh God, I wish I could have taken care of her," as though anyone could have slayed that yeah. demon for her. You know. I know. It was a. Uh, You'd have I don't know that anybody would have been up to the task, to be honest. But, um, but she was. I mean, if you if you watch something like Niagara, which uh, is a gorgeous Technicolor movie. I mean, my God, yeah. if you see a good good copy of that, it's just the eye popping. Yeah, uh, and she's mesmerizing in it. She's great in Bus mm-hmm. Stop. It's very good yeah. in The Misfits. I mean, there's she 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 had she had such a quality about her, which. Yeah, you don't need me to tell you that. I mean, she's Marilyn Monroe for a reason. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I love the two she did with Billy Wilder. You know, Seven Year Itch and Some Like It Hot. Those are mm-hmm. are really good. And uh, you know, he knew. He he said when he hired her for Some Like It Hot, he knew what he was getting into. He said, "I knew it was going to be a disaster." You're working with her, but he said it, it was worth it because yeah. there was just this indefinable, you know thing like you said you couldn't define it but when she would when you turn the cameras on they'd, they'd be waiting till lunchtime for her to show up and everybody's just sitting right. there waiting and you know but then when she got there well, she must have she must have been terrible she must have been terrible to work with i mean but you hear this you heard the same thing from Lawrence Olivier who had like a really bad time with her and he, yeah. and he said this one drunk scene that you turn the camera on and it's like well that's why she has to be in the movie that's why we put up with mm-hmm. her because yeah, there's something exactly. so effortless when she's on. There's something that seems so effortless. It just sucks you right in, and you can't. Uh, uh, and you t- and you don't know where, where the hell did that come from. <laughs> yeah, and 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 Billy Wilder always said that she. It was really weird because she would have trouble with a word. Like if it was one line or one word, and in, in that she was supposed to say, she would stumble over it and wouldn't be able to get it out. But then if it was a page of dialogue, she could just do it no problem. So it was. Yeah. It was like the more difficult it was, the easier it was for her. And really you weird. know, uh, this, is last, this is the last thing we'll talk about, Marilyn. Oh sure. I, I do think she's a fascinating subject. When I start talking about her, there's, there's something oh, that Burt Reynolds said. Burt Reynolds, I think Burt Reynolds was like in the actor studio or something with her. There was some connection that they had, and I think he was walking with her after class or to class or whatever. And he's like, I can't believe like nobody's uh, nobody's hounding you. Uh, and she said, "Oh, you want you want to see her?" And oh. uh, it was, oh, oh, sure. And so she just made like the slightest kind of 
attitude and body adjustment. And she was Marilyn, Marilyn Monroe. She wasn't wow. some cowering blonde on the street, like with her head down. And yeah. crowds just crowds just ran after them. It took seconds. That's amazing. That's a great story. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Mm, she did. She had that certain something. You're right. Well, another Twilight Time release is uh, Haley Mills and Oliver Reed in Take a Girl Like You, which is basically the story of a uh, a virgin and the man who's trying to uh, deflower her, played by Oliver Reed. <laughs> That's essentially what it is. And uh, made in 1970. And, uh, you know, it's 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 fine. I watched it, and it was it was. Fairly interesting for its time. It's kind of a, a a piece of its time, I guess you would say. But uh, this was, you know, released at a time in 1970 when these kind of things were were had not been talked about in the mainstream very long. That was kind of a new a new idea to do that. But they, so, they were they were in a lot of songs, dude. I mean, if you listen to like some songs of the 50s and 60s, well, there were a lot of songs that were that were about deflowering. Uh, at SNL actually did a when Will Ferrell hosted they did a skit about it like mm-hmm. a Time Life uh, record commercial and they, you'll hear hits like this and Will Ferrell was playing this old 50's doo-wopper and every song he sang was about trying to score with a 16 year old and that's what a lot of a lot of those songs were really yes that is true that's a good point yeah well we got another, a couple other, two more Twilight Times. We got my sister Eileen with Jack Lemmon, Janet Lee, and Betty Garrett. That's a musical. Oh. So and oh. Uh, screenplay by Blake Edwards, believe it or not. So interesting. Jack Lemmon singing it. I uh, I haven't gotten a chance to look at it, but uh, oh, Bob Fosse is uh, does the choreography. Forgot about that. And the songs are by Jewel Wow Jewel Stein and Leah Robin. Oh yeah, you got. So there's a movie Blake out there where Jack, where Jack Lemmon is doing Bob Fosse choreography. <laughs> yes, there he is. There absolutely is, and it's called My Sister Eileen, and it's written by wow. Blake Edwards to boot. Can you imagine that? Wow. So, and it has Janet Lee. So that's pretty amazing. Yeah, he's actually in the movie too, Bob Fosse. He, he's he's billed as Robert Fosse in the movie. So, yeah, I've been meaning to get around to this one, but I haven't had time yet. But, um, yeah, it's it's generally well-reviewed. So, And then there's My Gal Sal, which is a biopic of gay 90s-era songwriter Paul Dresser, who's played by Victor Mature. So we have that. So that's the other Twilight Time release. So um, yeah, and all these releases just have the uh, the isolated music tracks and the theatrical trailers right. is what you're getting. There's not really anything besides that this month. Most sometimes they'll have extra stuff, but that's it for this month. So that's your Twilight time, and then we have a couple of Screen Factory releases. We'll go through real fast. Uh, one is uh, speaking of Janet Lee. Here's a tie-in: Night of the Lepus, which is the story of. The Night of the Lepus, L-E-P-U-S, which is the story of 150-pound killer rabbits running loose in Arizona in the 1972 film. So, yeah, it's exactly what I just said. And this is one of those films that has a – It's 
I don't I don't know how to describe it. It's um, I guess so bad that it's good. It's, it falls along those lines because uh, they're they're doing these growth hormone experiments, and then the, the the rabbits grow to these incredible proportions, and the special effects are just they have to be seen to be believed because what they do is they photograph real rabbits in close up, and they add horse hoof prints on the soundtrack so that when they show these and they have these gigantic they have these they have these rabbits the real rabbits running around on these miniature sets so you know it'll show them going down the highway and you can tell it's clearly a miniature set with a real real rabbit shot and photographed in close up and then you've got your reaction shots from Janet Lee and 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 what's so funny is uh the uh, Stuart Whitman and Janet Lee are a couple and they're they're referred to in the movie as that young couple well they're in their late 40s when they made this so i <laughs> That young couple and their kid. So uh, uh, yeah, and you got they're Rory Calhoun. like rabbits. Yeah, they're yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, here's the other curio of casting. How about this? You also have DeForest Kelly from Star Trek in here. So wow. What uh, what what more do you need to sell this title? Right. Uh, those are just grand selling points, and so there's a. <laughs> Yeah, new new audio commentary by author Lee Gambin. There's a new audio commentary by pop culture historian Russell Dibble. There's TV spots and a steel gallery of uh, quite a few steals from the production of the film. So, Night wow. of the Lepus, 1972, from originally oh, from MGM. Out. Yeah, it sure I never is. consider. I never considered that uh, because they made so many of those. Uh, uh, oversized uh, insects and movies. Yeah, uh, I never cons- I never knew that they made a big rabbit movie too. Wow. <laughs> yeah, where's Elmer Fudd when we need him? So yeah, I don't know. Well, there is another Screen Factory release I'll mention, and that is uh, the Curse of the Cat People from 1944, mm. which is a sequel to the 1942 film The Cat People. And this was uh, it's interesting because it's co-directed by Robert Wise, who went on to do The Sound of Music and also edited, of course, famously, Citizen Kane. We'll throw as a yeah, little and contributed back. to Orson Welles' Downfall with Megan yeah, yeah. Anderson. That, that, that too, that too. <laughs> that I hold did. grudges at him. Well, I do too. So I'm I'm right there with you. But yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, uh, yeah, um, the Curse of the Cat People. Have you seen that? Have you seen the Curse of Cat People? I have not actually. Uh, I haven't haven't gotten around to, to looking at it. But uh, it has a generally uh, good, uh, positive word of mouth, and and a lot of followers, people who enjoy it. You know, but I'm told that it's more. Um, it's more atmospheric than it is actually scary. It's just a lot of, you know, yeah, kind of a foreboding well, I guess, atmosphere. I guess, I guess you might be able to say the same thing about the first one, but the uh, yeah, that first one I think is one of the great movies. I, I really love the first Cappy. Yeah, it is good. Now that I have seen, and it is it is very effective. Yeah, and so I, I, I'm definitely excited about getting around to Curse of the Cat People as well. So yeah, so that's out there. And there's uh, this is a DVD only, but I will mention this: that uh, Paramount has issued a ten-film collection of Jerry Lewis, uh, his uh. work that he did for Paramount, 
and it includes the stooge, the delicate delinquent, the bellboy, cinder, cinderfella, the errand boy, the ladies' man, the nutty professor, disorderly, orderly, the patsy, and the family jewels, and it has 90 minutes of special features. So wow. a lot of stuff from his vaults has been put here, like camera tests and I don't know, just all kinds of stuff. He's raided the vaults for this one. So anyway, a lot of Jerry, a lot of Jerry Lewis, man. Sure he is. Sure he is, but yeah. This this is another Paramount that's a Paramount release, by the way. And here's another Paramount release that um is worth mentioning because uh, I know it's one of Dean's favorite films of the year and uh it's wasn't released on Blu ray, just D V D only, not sure why, but the death of Stalin has been issued with um you know is just Only on D V D? Yeah, only on D V D, no Blu ray. So yeah, oh, Steve Bashimi and you know, and a cast of many more from the uh, creator of Veep and In the Loop. So anyway, yeah, but it's at least it got released on physical media, so that's we can be happy about that, I guess. And and then a couple other uh, Paramount releases, real quick. They did all of the previous Mission Impossible films on 4K uh, in anticipation of the release of the new one. So there's been 4K upgrades on Mission Impossible. One through five, and they do look great. I've gotten a chance to look at those, and they did a good job. And, you know, it's funny going back to revisit that first Mission Impossible because it almost plays like an art film uh, by today's standards. And, uh, you know, I remember it was kind of uh, dismissed when it came out as being disposable pop entertainment. But there's a lot of quiet stretches in that movie. And I'm thinking mm. to myself, this I don't know if this would play today or not. It's so... Different from what we're seeing in you know with these franchise films now, but um, my son yeah. he's seen enough. He's seen enough Brian De Palma films. My son has he's uh, seventeen, but he said, "I said it's directed by De Palma." He said, "I can tell the camera angles, Dad." <laughs> he knew right off the bat, right, 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 yeah. right. Immediately, he knew it was a Brian De Palma. And I, I think that I think that was a great uh, a great stroke on um, Tom Cruise's part to choose De Palma to. To break in that series, uh, yeah, because he is perfect director for a Mission Impossible. I back think so too. Time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So they, uh, I'm glad they did those on 4K though. I was, I was hoping. So it's, uh, you know, they're, they're all pretty good. I think the second one is probably the weakest of the batch, but you know, yeah. But the rest of them. Passable entertainment, and they get better as they go on. I think uh, the last two have been actually quite, quite entertaining. Yeah, so. I think so too. Well, yeah. I think he does generally a really good job with them. Um, uh, I, I I love the last two, but especially the fourth. Yeah. Uh, and the first one, you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it is a quiet place, notwithstanding. It is a real anomaly these days to see. A, uh, ten twelve minute sequence that's completely silent, like oh, you yeah. see in the first Mission Impossible. Yeah, but that's the yeah, strongest that's... scene in the movie. It is. It really is. You're exactly right. But um, anyway, so I'll mention a couple other titles. We're moving on to June 26th. We're getting to the end. This is the last day of the month for releases. That is, and so we'll we'll go through these real quickly. We've got. Uh, Disorganized Crime, which I think is another one of these touchstone movies that Kino has gotten the uh, 
uh, that they've gotten their hands on with their deal with Touchstone and or Disney rather. And I think this was notable because it has a good performance by Fred Gwynn in it. From but uh, it's I don't know it's not the best thing you're ever going to see. It's it's an interesting uh, cast, isn't it? Corbin Burnson and Ed O'Neill and Lou Diamond Phillips and like I said. Red Gwynn and Reuben Blades, I believe. So, wow. yep. I don't know the good the good old days of the late eighties. What what passed for mainstream releases back then? So, yeah. female I miss trouble. Those Corbin Bernstein days. <laughs> oh yeah, don't we all? Yeah. Good gracious. Yeah. Well, here's a Criterion release that's. A little bit of a surprise. They've been doing some of this, but uh, they don't do it quite often. They're putting out another John Waters film. They, last year they did Mondo Trash Show. They're do, doing Female Trouble now. And um, I'm surprised they haven't done Pink Flamingos yet. But, uh, yep, Female Trouble is actually one of my favorites of those early films that he did. It's actually quite quite funny. And there's, a, there's an audio commentary here from the 2004 DVD. It's been ported over. There's a old a Lady Divine is the name of this uh, featurette. It's an archival interview from 1975. And there's uh, on-set footage and uh, a remembering Female Trouble featurette and just uh, you know some interviews with some of the players and trim and cut scenes that go for about 15 minutes. So if you're a John Waters oh. fan, Female Trouble is uh, it's available in all of its high-definition glory. So here's an interesting one for you. This is a made-for-television event, but uh, certainly certainly worth mentioning, I think, is an adaptation of a Ray Bradbury novel considered to be one of his best novels. The Martian Chronicles has been issued by Kino Lorber. This was a miniseries originally. It's a whopping four hours and 55 minutes if you're uh, watching it all in one sitting, which I don't think too many people would be. But it's notable because the teleplay was done by Richard Madison, the famous sci-fi writer who did so so many things. And uh, it has a, uh, a curious cast. It has uh, Gail Honeycutt, Bernie Casey, Rock Hudson, Roddy McDowell, Darren McGavin, Bernadette Peters, Maria Schell, Joyce Van Patten, and Fritz Weaver, to name a few. Wow. So, uh, and it's about the uh, the colonization of Mars. You know, the first settlers to Mars and all that. So, was this a seventies miniseries? Uh, yeah, nineteen eighty actually, nineteen eighty. Oh. But but uh, yeah, I saw it when it originally aired. I'll be honest, I did. It, it aired on NBC, and uh, I'm not sure if it got a theatrical release overseas. I'm sure they probably shortened it if it did, but. Um, I remember it being fairly entertaining. I'm I'm really excited to go in and revisit it. I'm probably going to sp- uh, space it out over a couple of nights, but uh yeah, for sure. But uh yeah, it's 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 uh I'm glad they that's another one I'm glad they decided to issue. That may have been forgotten. So, uh Kino has issued The Martian Chronicles. And then there's a uh, collection of their Pink Panther cartoons. There's a second volume of those and uh, that's another Kino thing. And um, there's a 1976 film from Shout Factory that uh, they've issued called Survive. Now, we know the movie Alive, which is basically the same story. That's the one where they had the, the, the plane crashed and they had to 
to eat the uh, the, survi- the 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 survivors had to eat the dead basically to survive. And this is the same story, except it was uh, done in 1976, and it's a Mexican film that was actually imported to America, and I guess it ran in drive-ins or whatever. But it's yeah, it was the wow. a, a team of rugby players who, you know, the plane crashed in a remote area of the Andes Mountains and couldn't get out, so they had to they had to resort to cannibalism to survive. But I, I've always wanted to see this. I, I, I've always heard it's not really all that good, but in comparison to Alive, which I did see and, and liked quite a bit, I, I would like to see that one. So we may have to seek that yeah, one they, out. They ate, real, they ate real people in the, in the Mexican movie. Uh, <laughs> <I understand. laughs> they wanted the authenticity. Yeah, wanted to get the, wanted to get that real feel. <laughs> So uh yeah it was really yeah. uh, the uh, the act the actors went through a long casting process they were really desperate to be in that movie they were like <laughs> you know I give an arm and a leg to be in this movie <laughs> <laughs> Oh that's great well, well Criterion has issued one other title I want to mention The Virgin Spring which we know later on was uh, refashioned as The Last House on the Left the basic plot was reworked for yeah. West Craven film, but this is the 1960 version, which is actually based on a oh, an, uh, a story that had been around for a long time. This is like a, what an ancient um, fairy tale or something. I don't know. It's an old old story. Yeah. But uh, I'm sure Bergman really appreciated uh, one of his movies being forever associated with Last House of the Left. No, I'm sure. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Don't you know it? Well, it has audio commentary from 2005 by Bergman scholar Brigitta Steen, and there's uh, new video interviews from 2005 with uh, with some of the actors, and there's uh, an introduction by filmmaker Ang Lee, and audio mm. recording of a 1975 AFI seminar by Bergman, and uh, and a booklet. So, if you're a fan of Bergman, just wanted to mention it. That uh, it's been all gussied up for the uh, the Criterion Collection. So, and there's a 25th anniversary edition of a movie that we just talked about on our summer of 1993, The Sleepless in Seattle. They're bringing that one back out, which is a, which is really strange because a couple of years ago, and I don't know what this is all about, but a couple of years ago they weren't issued in this title at all, and they farmed it out to Twilight Time. Uh, didn't even want to didn't want to reissue it didn't want to put it out nothing no interest at all and twilight time put it out it sold out instantly of course and so now sony has gone back and decided to reissue it as a blu-ray so for the first time ever so i don't know why they would ignore that title after all the money it made during its original release why they yeah. gave it the sh- short shrift but they did popular movie yeah, and we'll close on this one for the Blu-rays, the 1986 film, and this is a Kino release, Miracles, starring Tom Conti, Terry Garr, Paul Rodriguez, Christopher Lloyd, and Ken Lerner, directed by Jim Koof. So, I, uh, I'm i not sure I know much about this title, but it's a, labeled as a quote-unquote comedy. So, <laughs> wanted to to mention it's out there for anybody who may be a fan. It's out there, and that is that is an interesting cast. I will say, you don't see t- 
Terry Gar, Paul Rodriguez, and Christopher Lloyd uh, in a movie uh, together all that often. So, yeah. 